You're listening to the Mens Rea podcast, and this is the story of Colleen Mulder. December 2004, a woman called into Dunshockland Garda Station in a distressed state. On foot of this, and information that the woman gave to Gardi, Garda Derek Halligan went to an address in a nearby housing estate called Maildoon. When he arrived, Garda Halligan found Anton Mulder, who lived in the home with his wife and six children, in the living room. Colleen and Anton Mulder had lived in Dunshockland for about two years having moved to the area in 2002 from Northern Ireland, after Anton got a job as a regional manager for KFC. Colleen also worked for KFC part-time, as did their two sons, the eldest of their kids. The couple had met and married in South Africa, where Colleen and her family had moved when she was seven years old from Bangor, County Down. After their marriage, Mulder had worked with traffic police in Durban, South Africa, but the economy was suffering at the time, and as things worsened, he was made redundant. The family moved to Ireland, following in the footsteps of Colleen's brother William, who had also returned to Bangor around that time. The Mulder family moved back and forth between Colleen's home place of Bangor and South Africa with their small children for a number of years, until Mulder began working for KFC and they settled in Dunshockland. In July of 2004, Colleen had had a miscarriage, and after this, according to Abigail Riley writing for the Irish Independent, the Mulder's marriage began to go downhill. There was tension between Anton and Colleen. Some said that Colleen became depressed. She and Anton started sleeping in separate rooms. When Gardy arrived at the Mulder's house that December morning, Anton Mulder was distressed. He was very upset and crying. He told Gardy that his wife was upstairs. Garda Halligan and his colleague made their way upstairs to a bedroom. There they saw Colleen Mulder lying on a bed, unresponsive. As Garda Halligan went to ring for an ambulance, one arrived on scene. Attempts were made to resuscitate Colleen, but all efforts ultimately failed. Colleen Mulder was dead. The following day, on Saturday the 18th of December, 43-year-old Anton Mulder appeared at a special sitting of the District Court in Navan, where he was charged with assault causing harm to his 41-year-old wife, Colleen. Superintendent Charlie Devine from Ashburn Garda Station told the court that when Mulder was charged, he had responded, quote, yeah. The superintendent also informed the court that it was expected more serious charges would follow. During the brief hearing, Anton held his head in his hands and reporters noted that he looked visibly distressed. Anton's lawyer, Liam Keane, asked for the judge to grant bail, pointing out that Mulder's six children were in the state and saying that when he'd gotten Irish citizenship, he had surrendered his South African passport and Mulder would not leave the country. Judge Brophy said he would be denying bail, as per the request of the state though, agreeing that Anton Mulder had no ties to the state 
and that he might not adhere to bail conditions. Anton Mulder was remanded in custody to Cloverhill Prison. The more serious charges came in February of 2005. Anton Mulder was rearrested on the first of that month and was charged with murder. He appeared again before the district court on this new charge the following day. The court heard that Mulder had been arrested at 10 past 4pm in Rohini in Dublin before being brought back to Ashburn Garda Station at 5.25. Judge John Brophy, sitting in Navan, again remanded Mulder into custody. Anton Mulder's trial for the murder of Colleen began on Tuesday the 3rd of May. Mulder pleaded guilty to manslaughter but denied the charge of murder. The plea was not acceptable to the state and so evidence in the trial was set to begin the following day before Mr Justice Philip O'Sullivan and a jury of 10 men and 2 women. However, when Mulder was brought into the courtroom and as the charge was being read to him, a man stood up, yelled and swore at the defendant. This was 37-year-old William Carson Pollock. He was Colleen's brother. He shouted, you murdering bastard. Mr Justice Paul Carney, presiding at the time, had the man brought before him, where Mr Pollock apologised, saying that he was angry. Mr Pollock said, quote, I apologise for shouting, but he did strangle my sister to death. That's just my reaction to seeing my sister's husband, end quote. Mr Justice Carney sent William Pollock to the cells below the court's building. He was brought back before the judge at 1pm and Mr Pollock apologised again, saying he'd just broken down and promised that it would not happen again. Mr Justice Carney said that he'd never seen any other person in Mr Pollock's position act in such a manner. Nevertheless, he accepted Mr Pollock's assurance that there would be no further outbursts. The following morning, Gerard Clark, senior counsel, appearing on behalf of the state, gave his opening speech. He said that it was the state's case that Mulder had strangled Colleen on the morning of the 17th of December 2004 at around 10 in the morning. The two had had problems in their relationship for a number of years and they'd slept in separate beds. Mr. Clark outlined the history of the relationship between the defendant and Colleen and told the jury that the two had met in South Africa and had married there in 1985. In the early 1990s, they'd moved to Bangor in County Down, where Colleen was from before her family had moved to South Africa in 1970. At that stage, Colleen's mother and sister also lived in Northern Ireland. In 2002, Anton Mulder was made a regional manager for Kentucky Fried Chicken and the family had moved to a rented home in Dunshockland, County Meath. By the time of Colleen's killing, they had six kids together, aged between 20 and 3. Anne Sarah Powich, Colleen's sister, appeared before the court that day. She said that the Mulder's marriage was not in a good state. Anton Mulder had contacted her in 2004. Anne said that this was unusual and it struck her as strange as the two did not have a friendship or much of a relationship at all. Nevertheless, after this call, the two met in Belfast and Mulder had said that he loved Colleen and was worried about her. He believed she was suffering with depression. Anne said she felt that the conversation was a sort of fishing expedition to see if Mulder could find out what his wife's plans for the future were. Anne said that at this point, Colleen was considering her options. She had begun to spend more time away from Dunshocklin and back in the family home in Bangor, Northern Ireland. Anne said that at one stage she had gone with Colleen to see a solicitor. Colleen had wanted advice on custody of the children should the marriage end. 
Roddy O'Hanlon, senior counsel acting on behalf of Anton Mulder, cross-examined Anne. When asked, Anne said that she was not aware if her sister had been engaged in an affair with a man named Johan, though Anne said she did know of a Johan and Colleen had told her that the man was a good friend. Anne also outlined that Colleen had had a miscarriage in July of 2004, and after this, it was the witness's impression that Colleen's attitude towards her relationship and her husband had changed. Anne told the court that Colleen had arrived back to Dunshockland that December from the north to stay for Christmas. During this stay, Anne testified that Colleen intended to let on to her husband that everything was okay because Colleen wanted to ensure that the kids would remain with her. Then Andrea Pollock, Colleen's sister-in-law, took to the stand. She said that they were close and described Colleen as a second mother to her kids. Mrs. Pollock told the court that a few days after Colleen had been killed, she had found a mobile phone, a tape, and a note belonging to Colleen in the Dunshockland house. The note had shocked Andrea, and so she'd taken it and the other items to the guardee. There was some difficulty while Andrea was on the stand, as some of what she wanted to say about the evidence that she had given was hearsay, things that she had learned from Colleen or that Colleen had told her, and the lawyers had to be careful not to allow the evidence to overstep into this area. After this, Garda Derek Halligan gave evidence regarding calling out to the Mulder's home on the morning of Friday the 17th of December, and he described for the court coming across Anton Mulder downstairs in the house and discovering Colleen's body upstairs in her bed. Halligan recounted that he had spoken to Mulder sometime after this, and Mulder had said to him that there had been an argument between the two that morning involving verbal abuse. Mulder said he'd grabbed Colleen around the neck and told her to shut up and leave him alone. Sergeant James Troy had also been at the house that day and had noticed bruising on Colleen's neck and some blood around her mouth. He'd arrested Anton Mulder and brought him to Navangarda Station. While being questioned, Mulder had told Gardy that he had lived in fear of Colleen and had even repeatedly barricaded himself in his daughter's room at night to try and ensure his safety. The ambulance crew, who had arrived on scene just after Gardie, told the court that they had tried everything they could to resuscitate Colleen, but that their efforts had failed. The court also heard that Dr. Maria Casey had pronounced Colleen dead at about half past eleven that morning. I'm delighted to say that this episode is sponsored in part by our good friends, the mobile puzzle game Best Fiends. That's friends without the R. I love Best Fiends because it's a casual game and easy to play, and it keeps you engaged with its fun challenges, which are updated with themes and events, so there's always something new for you to do. I'm collecting watering cans for the Garden Glory Challenge and trying to win a food coma version of Bob in the Turkey Day competition. He'll be a good reflection of my goals until the end of the year. Don't forget that you can add me as a friend on the app by heading to Settings, My Friends, and entering the code 1932267. We can race through the over 7,000 levels that Best Fiends now has. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. So hurry. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play today. 
That's friends without the R. Best fiends. This episode is also sponsored in part by NordVPN. It's only a few years ago that trying to use a VPN on my computer would drive me insane. I could never get them to work and I would waste hours following instructions online and messing around with settings. But those days are over. NordVPN is so easy to use. You're connected with the click of a button and it's just as easy to change your location. Which is great because the reason I spent all that time messing around with browser settings was to access movies and TV shows that I want to watch. It's amazing the amount of content that's available in different regions. I watched the Way Down docuseries last week, the one about the diet program slash religious group led by Gwen Shamblin. With NordVPN, you literally have the best of not just both worlds, but the entire world at your fingertips. And with NordVPN, I can be sure my data is secure and that I won't deal with buffering or lag because it's the fastest VPN in the world. Right now, NordVPN are offering a fantastic holiday season deal. Go to nordvpn.com forward slash mensrea or use the code mensrea to get up to 73% off your NordVPN plan plus a bonus gift. Their plans are the equivalent of buying a cup of coffee every month, which is a small price to pay for fast, premium cybersecurity and access to vast amounts of entertaining content. There's also a 30-day money-back guarantee if NordVPN is not for you, so there's no risk. Grab NordVPN's holiday season deal. Get up to 73% off your NordVPN plan plus a bonus gift. Go to nordvpn.com forward slash mensrea or use the code mensrea right now. On the second day of testimony in the trial, the court heard from Johan de Waal. He was a truck driver, also originally from South Africa. He had become friends with Anton and then with Colleen. He had become quite close with her and at one point had near daily contact with her. Duval was close enough with Anton that at one point the defendant lent him money to buy a car. Johan recalled a house party he had attended in the summer of 2004. There he had spoken to Anton and Johan told Jared Clark, prosecuting that Anton had confided to him that he was sick of his family. Johan alleged that Anton said he was going to max out all the credit cards take out a second mortgage on their house in Bangor, and then return to South Africa with all the money. Mr. Duval was cross-examined then and said that he did not feel that his relationship with Colleen was an affair, but rather a good friendship. He did admit, however, that they had slept together on two occasions in the past. He couldn't remember the dates of these encounters, but said that one had happened in Athboy, County Meath, and the other in Bangor. Shortly after the party in 2004, Mr. Duval had gotten a text message from Anton Mulder saying that both the defendant and Colleen had agreed that they would end their friendship with the witness. Then another South African friend of the Mulders gave evidence, Christy Courtson. He had spoken with the defendant on the 8th of December 2004 when the defendant had come to his home. Mr. Courtson lived next door to the Mulders. Anton had told him that he was unhappy with his wife and that he felt like, quote, picking up a knife and making an end of her, end quote. Clinton Mulder, the couple's 21-year-old son, gave evidence then. He said that he had not gotten on with his father, saying he felt Mr. Mulder treated him and the rest of the family unfairly. It was his way or the highway, Clinton told the court. His parents fought a lot, but he'd never seen them get physical. 
In late 2004, after Clinton had gone to the Isle of Man for a training course, he recalled that his father had changed his behaviour and was acting, quote, nicer. On cross, Clinton disagreed with the statement that his father had spoken to him about concerns over his own poor behaviour. He also said that he'd never seen his father hit his mother or any of the other children. A statement had been taken from Mulder by Detective Garda Valentine Cross, and this was read to the court. Mulder had told Gardy that there had been problems in his marriage for four or five months, and that things had gotten so bad that he had picked up literature for himself about domestic abuse. On the morning of the 17th, he and his wife had been arguing about what Mulder described as a family matter. He alleged Colleen had told him that he was not a father to their children. Colleen started yelling at him, cursing and making threats. He'd gotten upset and grabbed his wife by the head, he said, in order to close her mouth. After this, she had died, and Mulder said he hadn't meant to do this. A second statement that day was given by the defendant to Detective Garda James O'Sullivan. The detective told the court that Mulder had been remorseful throughout this process. Mulder had told him that his memory of what exactly had happened was not good, but Mulder admitted that he had gone for his wife, saying he had had enough. Mulder described how, after Colleen had died, he'd left the bedroom and rang a solicitor. He'd asked the lawyer to contact a doctor and an ambulance. He told the solicitor that he thought his wife was okay and said he would never hit Colleen and that whatever had happened was totally out of his nature. Another matter was dealt with before the court adjourned for the evening that day. Mr Justice O'Sullivan made an order excluding Colleen's brother, William Pollock, and his wife Andrea from the court. This came about because the jury foreperson had notified the judge that Mr Pollock had approached one of the jurors the day before. Mr Pollock had asked to borrow a newspaper that the juror was carrying and then proceeded to read out an article about the case and the disruption in the court. Mr. Pollock told the juror that he was the one who had caused the commotion in the court earlier in the week. Later, he'd also smiled and greeted the juror. The juror in question said that they felt that this familiarity was wrong, but said that they'd be able to continue with their duties. And so, both Mr. Pollock and his wife were not only banned from attending the trial, but they were also excluded from being in or around the court building itself. The next day, Friday the 5th of May, yet another South African acquaintance of the Mulders appeared before the court. Andreas Johannes Laubser was a chef and worked with Anton Mulder. Mr Laubser said that on the 8th of December 2004, outside one of the restaurant premises, the two men had had a conversation. The witness testified that the defendant had said he was planning to go to his wife's house in the north and kill her there. Laubser said that he had got on with both Anton and Colleen, but he was aware that there was tension in the marriage. Mulder had continued in the conversation and said that it was easy to do that kind of thing in this country, and that he would only serve five or six years if he were caught. He said he'd still be young when he was released from jail. Anton said he was worried that Colleen was going to leave and take the kids to Northern Ireland. In an earlier conversation, Mr Mulder had told Mr Laubser that Colleen had left him for another man. Andreas told the court that he hadn't gone to the Gardaí immediately, even though he took what Mr Mulder had told him seriously, and didn't think that the defendant had been just, quote-unquote, shooting off his mouth, because it seemed to the witness that Mulder had a genuine fear of losing his kids. 
On Monday, the 8th of May, the beginning of the second week of the trial, more of the Mulder's children gave evidence in their father's trial. Their 19-year-old son, Christopher, gave a statement which was read to the court. In it, he said that he had never seen his dad hit his mum, but that he had seen his father hit walls and objects in anger during their rows, destroying the whole house. The 19-year-old recalled that his dad had told him in 2004 that he'd caught Johan Duvall hugging Colleen and that Johan would not be invited to spend time with the family anymore. Colleen had gone to stay in Bangor in the middle of November 2004 and the court heard in Christopher's statement that his father would ring Colleen every day while she was gone because, their son said, Anton wanted Colleen to come back to Dunshocklin. When Colleen did come back to the home in County Meath that December, Christopher said she had told him that she planned to leave Anton after Christmas, but that she had not told her husband about this. Then one of their daughters gave evidence via video link. The younger Mulder children, four girls, were all being cared for at that time by Anne and Colleen's 73-year-old mother in Bangor. The girl was a minor and therefore was not required to come into the courtroom itself to give testimony. She told the court that her parents fought all the time. She had not seen her mother on the morning of the 17th of December as she'd got up early and had left the house for school. When cross-examined by Mr O'Hanlon, the girl said she had seen her mother slap her father a few times during an argument around Halloween in 2004. Her mum had told her dad to go on and hit her back, but according to the girl, Anton said he would not stoop to Colleen's level. A younger daughter then also gave evidence via video link. She said that on the morning of the 17th, she'd heard her mum shouting upstairs in the home and also swearing at her father. The girl was upset throughout her testimony and was too upset to tell the court what she had seen when she went upstairs in the house that morning. The jury in the case were sent out on the evening of Tuesday the 9th of May, but they'd not come to a verdict by 7pm and were sent to stay the night in a hotel. On May 10th, after five hours of deliberation in the case, the jury returned. They had reached a unanimous verdict, finding Anton Mulder guilty of the murder of his wife Colleen. Mr Justice O'Sullivan handed down the mandatory life sentence. The judge commented while handing down the sentence, quote, It was a sad day for his family and for all of those who had anything to do with him, end quote. After the trial concluded, members of Colleen's family spoke to the press outside the court. 19-year-old Christopher, whose statement had been heard in the case, was particularly vocal and raised his arm in the air in triumph as he left the court. He said he was glad his father had been given life, continuing, quote, I'm glad justice is done, and if he was not in jail, I would have taken justice in my own hands, end quote. His aunt and Colleen's sister, Anne, tried to intervene and quieten down the young man. She told reporters that she was happy with the verdict, though she hadn't expected the verdict to go their way. She said that there was a lot that the jury hadn't heard, and she didn't know why. She felt that this information would have helped to enforce the idea that this had been murder rather than manslaughter, and the jury not having heard this was why she had not expected them to return their guilty of murder verdict. Anne was pleased with the results and added, quote, I just want to forget he even exists. I don't feel he's even worth a reaction, end quote. Outside of the court was also William Carson Pollock, Colleen's brother, who had been censured at the beginning of the proceedings for shouting in the courtroom 
and then later excluded from the court altogether. Mr. Pollock told the press, quote, We are happy with the outcome of it all. What he has put my sister through all her life, I think he deserves everything he got. End quote. Anton Mulder quickly took an appeal against his conviction. His legal team argued that the trial had been unfair, saying that William Pollock's approach to a juror in the court had had an influence on the jury. They also cited the incident where Mr. Pollock had shouted at the defendant in the court. Given that the appeal hinged on this incident, the Criminal Court of Appeal focused in detail on what had occurred in the court and the decisions made by the judge at the time. In the trial, before the hearing of evidence began and before Justice O'Sullivan took his seat, Mr. Justice Paul Carney had addressed the jury after they were sworn. He referenced the incident where Mr. Pollock had shouted in court. The judge emphasised that this was to be a trial held in accordance with law and that nothing had been proved against anyone. He asked the jury whether they thought that the incident would have any impact on hearing the case and deciding a verdict based on the evidence presented. The jury said that they could all continue. The court then looked at the evidence that had been given by Andrea Pollock. Her questioning had posed a difficulty as she had knowledge of statements made by Colleen, which she kept trying to reference. The judges of the appeals court noted that the nature and context of Andrea's evidence did mean that it was difficult to keep within the hearsay rules and that any straying outside of those rules appeared to have been accidental in this case. The last incident of interest occurred on Wednesday the 5th of May, the third day of the trial. Counsel for the prosecution informed the judge that Gardy had concerns regarding the behaviour of William and Andrea Pollock. Police had requested that the couple be excluded from the court while evidence was being heard. When the trial judge, Mr. Justice O'Sullivan, heard this, he announced that he had gotten a note from the foreperson of the jury regarding William Pollock's behaviour, saying he was, quote, making himself a small bit familiar with some of the members of the jury, end quote. The judge, prosecution and defence lawyers then discussed the issue and what was to be done about it. Justice O'Sullivan suggested that he should let the foreman know that he'd received the note and perhaps ask them to discreetly inquire further about what had occurred and if they'd been affected in such a way as to become incapable of discharging their duty. Mr. Clark, for the prosecution, asked for the judge to go ahead and make the order to exclude the Pollocks. As Mr. Clark made this request, Justice O'Sullivan noted that Mr. O'Hanlon, Mulder's defence counsel, was shaking his head. Given the opportunity to speak, O'Hanlon said that it was his view that any interference with the jury called for the discharge of the jury. He said it was the only way to properly deal with the issue, as it was often the case that once sworn in, a jury member might be reluctant to say in public that there would be a difficulty in discharging their duties. Mr. O'Hanlon said that simply asking the jury would not be enough to ensure the appearance of fairness in the case. Justice O'Sullivan asked if there were any precedents that might apply in these circumstances, but nothing helpful was offered at the time. Mr. Clark submitted that the discharge of the jury would be an overreaction. He asked for the judge to ask for details of what had happened from the jury foreperson, and he informed the judge of what had happened during Mulder's charging. An order was made excluding the Pollocks from the vicinity of the courts. The judge decided that it was best to discuss what had happened before discharging a jury in the middle of proceedings 
and asked the foreman to get more details as to what had happened. Mr. Justice O'Sullivan decided that the best course of action was to question the jury further, and he asked the foreperson to get details about the nature of the contact that was made by Mr. Pollock. When the jury returned, the foreperson said that they'd been aware of the outburst in the courtroom on Tuesday, and then outlined that on Wednesday, Mr. Pollock had approached a juror and borrowed a paper. The report he read out was about his outburst, and he identified himself to the juror as Mr. Pollock. At the end of the day, Mr. Pollock had also greeted that juror again, smiling and nodding. The foreperson said, quote, The outcome of this whole thing is that the juror in question feels somewhat intimidated and uncomfortable, end quote. Mr. Justice O'Sullivan then asked a number of questions. He had it confirmed that it was just one juror who had been approached, and he wanted to know whether this person felt able to discharge his or her duty. The juror in question was identified to the judge and Justice O'Sullivan asked directly if he agreed with the summary given by the foreperson. The juror said he did. The judge then asked if the juror felt intimidated or uncomfortable. The man said, quote, the word I am using and stressing was, the familiarity was wrong, end quote. The judge asked again if he was inhibited or uncomfortable and whether he felt he'd be able to carry out his duty. The juror said he felt it was, quote, probably okay to carry on, end quote. The jury withdrew and the judge turned again to discuss matters with the barristers. Mr. Clark, for the prosecution, said he thought that there was no reason to dismiss the jury. There had been, quote, merely a slight familiarity, rather than the intimidation that had been reported by the foreperson. Mr. Pollock had merely asked for a paper and merely repeated an incident that the juror had been present for. Mr. O'Hanlon disagreed, saying that there had been a clear and deliberate interference. Justice O'Sullivan gave his assessment of what he had heard. The Court of Criminal Appeal highlighted that O'Sullivan had said, quote, the juror didn't agree with the foreperson's description, that he was somewhat intimidated, and said he did not feel intimidated, but he did feel that the familiarity was wrong. In response to my question, he felt confident that he could carry on as a juror, end quote. Counsel appearing on behalf of the DPP said that referring to these incidents as intimidation was an exaggeration on the part of Mulder's defence and that the trial judge had been correct in his decision to allow proceedings to go ahead at the time. In their judgment, the judges applied a legal test. Would a reasonable person have a reasonable apprehension that the appellant would not, in the circumstances, receive a fair and impartial trial, having regard to the robust common sense of juries. This test had not been applied by the trial judge. The three-judge panel pointed out that the judge seemed to disregard the juror's initial response, that he agreed with the four-person's description of what had happened, which used the word intimidated. They found that the more the judge questioned regarding this, the more likely a juror would be to say that they would be unbiased and able to hear the case. There wasn't merely one incident that had occurred which could be resolved by appropriate directions to the jury. The nature and cumulative effect of what had happened made it basically impossible to salvage the jury. The appeal was allowed, and so on the 23rd of May 2007, the Court of Appeal set aside Mulder's conviction and a retrial was ordered. In the meantime, Mulder was remanded in continuing custody.
Six months later, on January 14, 2008, Anton Mulder was before Mr Justice Kevin O'Higgins, facing the charge of murdering his wife four years before. Once again, he pleaded not guilty to the charge. Roderick O'Hanlon continued to act as Mulder's defence. Before the hearing of evidence got underway, Mr Justice O'Higgins made an order that excluded William Pollock and his wife from the grounds of the court from the outset. The next day, Tuesday the 15th of January, Garda Derek Halligan described how he'd gone to the Mulder's home after a woman had called into the station in a very distressed state. On arrival at the house, he could see into the front room from a window. Mr Mulder was sitting with his back to the window with a child on his knee. It took a while to get Mr Mulder to answer the door, but once he did, Mulder gestured upstairs and said, quote, she's up there. They found Colleen's body lying on the bed then. Anne, Colleen's sister, again gave evidence, outlining not only their trip to speak to a solicitor at Citizens Advice, but that the two women had also gone to the South African Embassy, seeking information about parental rights for the kids. According to Anne, Colleen had effectively moved back to Bangor in the latter months of 2004, but her sister did return to the rented home in County Meath for periods of time. Anne reiterated that her sister didn't want to let Mr Mulder know that she wanted to separate and take the kids with her, and that this would cause problems if he did find out. During their unusual phone conversation, Anne told the court that Mulder had said he thought Colleen was having some sort of mental breakdown, that she might be taking drugs and she was eating nothing but ice chips. When Anne visited the house in October of 2004, She felt that Mulder was being very polite, which she said was out of character for him. Ms. Serapovich said, quote, I think it was planned out of character. He knew what he was doing, end quote. Next, the court heard from former Garda James O'Sullivan. The defendant had told Mr. O'Sullivan that on the morning of her death, Colleen had been verbally abusing him for up to 20 minutes, and he'd just snapped, grabbing at her head and mouth to try and stop her. O'Sullivan said that Mulder had told him he just wanted to, quote, have his say, end quote. Mr Mulder also went on to tell the then Garda that before the police had arrived, the defendant had rang a friend of his in Dunshockland who was a solicitor and asked him to phone for an ambulance and to get the Gardaí because he thought Colleen would be accusing him of assault when she came down the stairs after him. Then, Johan Duval gave evidence again, outlining his interactions with the Mulder family. This time, however, he admitted that after Colleen had moved out of the family home and separated herself from Mulder in late 2004, the two had indeed started a relationship. Mr Duval said that they were in love. On the second day of the trial, the court heard Anton Mulder's statements to Gardee, where he described having routinely barricaded himself into a room with his daughters, which he said he shared with them, as he was afraid for his safety. He'd said Colleen had threatened to have him shot. Former Detective Garda Valentine Cross said Mr Mulder told Gardee he was afraid of men bursting into his room in the middle of the night with AK-47s. He described intense verbal abuse and had picked up a leaflet from Amen's Men's Domestic Violence Group. Mulder went on to state that the couple argued about stupid things all the time, including their son's use of cannabis, and that Colleen would go off on tirades that he described to the Gardaí as thousands of pages of words. 
Next, Deputy State Pathologist Michael Curtis appeared before the court and said that Colleen had died from manual strangulation. He said that this would have taken moderate levels of force, but he was not able to say how long it would have taken for death to occur in this specific case, only that the pressure would have had to have been applied for several seconds. On the 17th of January, the court once again heard from Chef Andreas Laubzer, who recalled his conversation in Afrikaans with Mr Mulder outside a KFC location in Dublin, where the defendant said killing his wife would be easy in this country and that he would serve little time for it. Mr Laubzer told the court that Mulder explained that Colleen had moved out of their rented family home in Dunshockland back to their house in the north. Mulder had added that Colleen had run off with another man and that he wouldn't let her take the kids. When questioned by the defence, Mr Laubzer denied that he knew Mr Mulder had been dissatisfied with his work and that there were plans to fire him after Christmas in 2004. Mr Laubzer acknowledged that he had not brought this conversation to the attention of the Gardee until after Colleen had died. The court also heard from one of the Mulder's daughters, again appearing via video link, who said that she was afraid of her dad and that she preferred when her mum was staying in the house. Her fear was such that she often stayed with friends when her mother was away staying in Northern Ireland. She said that her parents fought often and that Mulder tried to start fights all the time. She said her mum would tell Mulder to leave her alone when this happened. That's what she had heard on the morning of her mother's death. There had been shouting coming from upstairs and Colleen had told Mulder to leave her alone. When asked about why this detail was missing from her Garda statement, Colleen's daughter said that she'd been scared when giving the statement and had forgotten to tell Gardy what she had heard. She continued that that morning she'd been downstairs with two of her sisters watching TV when they heard the argument start. One of her sisters went upstairs, but then quickly she'd returned and told the other girls that their father had killed their mother. The witness then went upstairs herself and saw her mother lying on the bed, with her father standing looking down at Colleen's body and crying. She recalled that her father had slept in her and her sister's room the night before, and said that this had happened only once that she could remember. The Mulder's sons also gave evidence again in the second trial. 22-year-old Clinton told the court that his mother was scared of his father, but that he'd never seen Anton hit Colleen, saying, quote, not personally, not with my own eyes. His parents had not been getting on in 2004, and there were arguments about the custody of the younger kids. He said his mother had moved back to live in the north in Bangor in November of 2004, and that his parents had been arguing, but there were no physical altercations. His recollection of his father's demeanour was that after a trip he took to the Isle of Man in 2004, the defendant's attitude had changed noticeably. Clinton said, quote, he was just really nice, which wasn't him, end quote. Christopher, then 19, reiterated his earlier statement that his father would, quote unquote, destroy the house and hit out at objects making a mess. He'd seen his mother hit his father on one occasion, continuing that in that incident, his father had cornered Colleen in the kitchen before she struck him. Christopher agreed with his brother's evidence that after the trip to the Isle of Man, the defendant had been more friendly. Then, a statement made by Petronella Ludwig, a friend of Colleen's, was read to the court. 
She had spoken with Colleen about her relationship with the defendant before her death. Ms Ludwick was sure that Colleen would be leaving the marriage and noted that in the months before Colleen's death, the woman had referred to the defendant as Adolf. Petronella said that, to her knowledge, Mr Mulder had never helped out with the kids and the couple did not go out together. With that, the prosecution completed their presentation of evidence in the case. Then there was a break in the hearing of evidence for a number of days while legal argument was presented. The prosecution was objecting to the evidence from a psychiatrist that the defence wanted to call. Dr Sally Lenehan had assessed Mr Mulder in August of 2006 and it was the prosecution's submission that she had no information about the defendant from the time of the killing of Colleen. The defence conceded that the purpose of calling Dr Lenehan was to speak about Mulder's current mental condition. However, Mr O'Hanlon, for the defence, said that the purpose of her evidence would be to indicate that Mr Mulder had continued on medication for mental health reasons and argued that Dr Lenehan's testimony would act in support of the evidence that the court would hear from other psychiatrists. The judge decided that he would defer a decision on Dr Lenehan's evidence if and until the defence had demonstrated through their own witnesses that there was a basis to call the doctor and that her evidence was relevant to the matters before them. The court resumed the hearing of evidence on the morning of Wednesday the 23rd, when Mulder's defence team called Dr Harry Kennedy, a consultant forensic psychiatrist and the clinical director of the Central Mental Hospital. He had seen Mr Mulder on the 20th of December 2004 and on the 6th of April 2005 in Clover Hill Prison after the defendant was referred to him by a GP. The doctor said he had prescribed olanzapine to Mulder when he saw him. This is an atypical antipsychotic medication, which sounds rather serious, but it's commonly prescribed in low doses, like the 10 milligram prescribed to Mulder in this instance, to help with sleep and to ease agitation and anxiety. Mulder was also on an SSRI antidepressant medication. Neither of these medications were unusual, said Dr. Kennedy, as it was often the case that someone charged with murder would be anxious or depressed, and doctors and prison workers had a concern that the risk of self-harm or attempts at suicide were increased in the period after someone has been charged with a serious crime. Dr. Kennedy said that Mulder was in this sort of depressed mode, which is understandable in those circumstances and he confirmed for the court that Mr Mulder had never been an inpatient in a mental hospital. Then Dr Connor O'Neill, a forensic psychologist also from the Central Mental Hospital, gave evidence. He said that Anton Mulder suffered from a moderate to mild depressive illness and had been showing symptoms of this in the months prior to Colleen's killing. He had had a series of interviews with the defendant and had had access to the book of evidence as well as Garda interviews with Mr Mulder. Dr O'Neill said that there was little to no family history of mental illness in Mulder's family. Mulder had described a feeling of depression in the two years before Colleen's death, particularly in the months after her miscarriage, and he'd said that along with this he also had a significant weight loss due to loss of appetite. According to Dr O'Neill, these symptoms could be compatible with depressive illness. Dr O'Neill concluded that Mulder was suffering from a mild depressive disorder and that this came under the definition of a mental disorder as per the Criminal Law Insanity Act of 2006. In effect, at the time of Colleen's killing, 
Mulder had an illness which resulted in his diminished responsibility. Dr. O'Neill said on cross that he didn't think Mulder was lying or being strategic regarding his symptoms, and he dismissed the suggestion that Mulder's weight loss had been because Colleen had moved back to Northern Ireland and was no longer cooking Mulder's food. The doctor accepted that there had been depression since Mulder went to prison and said that this would be understandable, but he was also firm in his conclusion that the symptoms of depression had been present in the months before Colleen was killed. However, another psychiatrist was called to the stand by the prosecution, Dr. Paul O'Connell, and he had disagreed with this assessment. Dr. O'Connell said that Mulder was an unreliable historian when it came to his psychological assessments, and that the defendant had contradicted himself in their assessments repeatedly. According to Dr. O'Connell, Mulder was, quote, cunning, deceitful, manipulative, and plausible, end quote, and it was his opinion that his colleagues had accepted at face value what Mulder had told them. Commenting on the medication that had been prescribed to Mulder, Dr. O'Connell said that these were commonly prescribed to prisoners who were having difficulty sleeping and adjusting to life in jail. He noted that it would be unusual to become more pleasant or agreeable if suffering from depression, as had been noted by a number of people who had interacted with Mulder prior to Colleen's death. In fact, Dr. O'Connell said that this change in mood was inconsistent with such a diagnosis. On the afternoon of the 24th of January, the jury retired to consider their verdict. They were sent to a hotel for the night after deliberating for around two hours. The ten men and two women resumed deliberations the following morning. They returned with their verdict that day and in total had spent just three hours behind closed doors. They found Anton Mulder guilty once again of killing Colleen. This time, the verdict was decided by a majority of 10 to 2. Clinton and Christopher, still sitting in the court, began laughing and waved mockingly at their father as he was led from the courtroom. Anne, Colleen's sister, broke down in tears. She had attended every day, while the boys had been at a number of days of the hearing. She told the press afterwards, quote, To get the verdict once was a miracle. To get it twice, I don't know quite what to say. We're over the moon. He got what he deserved, and I feel that now my sister can rest in peace, God love her. End quote. The family hugged and laughed outside the forecourts where the trial had been held. Clinton spoke of his mother telling reporters that Colleen had been a quote, very loving, heartfelt, wonderful woman. There's no words that can describe her. She was one of a kind. This episode is sponsored in part by Wine52. How would you like to try some incredible, top-quality wines for free? I'm delighted to introduce my new favorite wine club, Wine52, a monthly wine discovery club. They are so sure you'll love their wines that you can grab your first case completely free. All you need to do is go to wine52.com forward slash men's and cover the postage costs of £5.95 and you'll get three bottles delivered right to your door. Wine to your door. Let me say that once more. Wine to your door. 
Wine52 is a wine club with a difference. Instead of stocking thousands of wines from hundreds of producers, Wine52 only selects the very best of the best. Their expert wine tasters search out the most exciting wine regions and top undiscovered winemakers in the world and bring them to your door. How fancy is that? And this is great because I don't know much about wine bar the fact that I like drinking it. So this is a great way to try out new wines without playing label roulette or ending up with the old reliable. Each month, Wine52 sends their members three wines, which you can customize to your taste by choosing from a case of white, red, or a mix. Also included is their magazine, Glug, which brings you the story of the producers and insight about wine and travel from each region. After your free case, you'll be part of the monthly wine club. There's no minimum commitment, so you can try it and see what you think. If it's not for you, you can pause or cancel at any time. So remember, that's wine with the numbers 5 and 2.com forward slash M-E-N-S, wine52.com forward slash men's, and you can claim your free case today. Please drink responsibly. Again, Anton Mulder appealed the decision of the court. This was heard in March of 2009 by Mr. Justice Nicholas Kearns, sitting with Ms. Justice Mary Irvin and Mr. Justice John Edwards. Mulder's legal team argued that the trial judge had erred in not allowing Dr. Lenehan's evidence to be heard, which had damaged the defence's ability to put the prospect of diminished responsibility to the jury. This exclusion, they said, meant that the conviction was unsafe. On the other hand, counsel for the DPP argued that the decisions made by the trial judge had been perfectly appropriate, given that the psychiatrist in question had only begun treating Mulder three years after the time of the killing. The appeals court went through not only the legal submissions regarding Dr. Lenehan's possible testimony, but also the testimony given by the other mental health professionals that the court had heard during the trial. The judges pointed out that during the trial, after hearing testimony from Dr. Kennedy and Dr. O'Neill, the defence had made no further application for Dr. Lenehan's evidence to be heard. In addition to that, the judges of the CCA decided that the evidence that the doctor would have offered would have added little and, further, it was irrelevant given it related to the current mental state of Mr. Mulder. No incorrect ruling had been made in that instance. Mulder's legal team also argued that the mention of Mulder's prison sentence by Dr. O'Connell had been prejudicial. Dr. O'Connell had noted that it was common to visit prisoners in custodial settings, and that the treatment that had followed his visit with Mr. Mulder had been quite common for someone who had just been handed down a long sentence. Mr. O'Hanlon, for the applicant, said that the jury should have been dismissed because of this. However, the defence's own witness, Dr. O'Neill, had made reference to the fact that Mulder was in prison, and necessarily, as the incarceration itself could be an explanation or partial explanation for Mr. Mulder's symptoms. This argument was rejected by the appeal court as well. Finally, there was an objection regarding a phrase used by Dr. O'Connell, where he called Mr. Mulder cunning, deceitful and manipulative. This was prejudicial and had no probative value, Mulder's team argued. However, the appeals court found that Dr. O'Connell had been offering his view in support of the conclusion that Mulder was not suffering from depression, nor had an application been made at that time to discharge the jury. At the end of the presentation of the arguments, the court reserved its decision, and four weeks later, the Criminal Court of Appeal dismissed the application. 
The court found that there had been no disadvantage to Mulder's defence as the evidence had only related to Mulder's mental state at the time of the second trial and it offered nothing about what had been going on for him at the time of Colleen's killing. In March of 2020, Anton Mulder, aged 60, was released from custody, having spent 15 years in total in prison. He spoke with the Irish Independent in June of 2020 as he walked through Dublin city centre. He said he regretted what he had done and that he lived with that every day. In response, William Pollock, aged 52 by that stage, said, quote, As long as he keeps his distance from our family, he will have no effect on my life. I've forgiven him and put it to the back of my mind, but I don't know what a face-to-face encounter would be like. As much as everyone would like a killer to stay behind bars, life isn't like that. You have to grin and bear it. He has his God to face. End quote. Mr. Pollock also went on to discuss Clinton and Christopher, the two eldest of the Mulder's children. Both had had struggles with mental health, and Christopher had passed away in 2017, with Clinton dying just a year later. In May of this year, 2021, Paul Healy and his colleagues at the Irish Mirror tracked down Anton Mulder. He was living in a small County Wicklow town, having just returned from visiting one of his kids. Mulder seemed to have spoken at length with reporters, saying he might be out on licence, but he felt that even in release, he was serving a sentence. Mulder's movements were restricted to the state, so he couldn't go to South Africa to visit family. Ireland being so small, he also can't live a normal life. Mulder said he felt he was better off when he was in prison. There, he had friends, and had people to pass time with, and so on. Mulder prevaricated about taking responsibility for what he had done, on the one hand telling the paper, quote, I understand what happened, I know where I went wrong, end quote, and then, quote, was I thinking clearly? I don't know myself. I don't know what I was thinking at the time. I just lost it, end quote. He said he was sorry and that he often cried over the hurt he had caused. However, he seemed to acknowledge or accept only that he'd been convicted of the murder, intimating that his actions had somehow been justified by the circumstances of his life. According to Mulder, he didn't know what had happened in those moments, but he did know the truth of what had led to them. He had wanted to testify, he said, but in the end, he knew the truth. Mulder said he was trying to fix things with his kids, but that he was in no way getting on with life. He said, quote, My life is gone. The day that happened, my life was gone. You have to wonder. What would Colleen have to say about that? Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at mensreapod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. A special thanks goes out to Kira Brickley, Anne-Marie Heidish, and Anna McKell. Thanks to each and every one of you for signing up to support the show. It is hugely important to be able to keep Mens Rea going and along with my undying love for helping out, you get ad-free and bonus episodes as well as Nifty March. So head on over to patreon.com forward slash Mens Pod. Thanks also to our sponsors for this week, Best Fiends, Nord, VPN and Wine52. Remember, supporting our sponsors supports this show, so check them out in the show notes. Our theme music is Quinn's song The Dance Begins by Kevin McLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin McLeod. 
This episode was researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do.